Welcome to the Makeshift Podcast, hosted by Chris Powell from Full Steam Designs and myself, Corey Stanley from Odyssey CNC. And tonight we have Chris Bathgate. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing great. Good. What's going on, guys? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, before we get started, just got to do a quick ad read for our sponsor, and that's Pwn CNC. Uh, they make dust boots, spindle kits, and they're all pre-wired, so they're super easy to install. They've got a bunch of really cool options for clamps. You know, we're holding your workpiece down on your uh, CNC table and whatever. Uh, they got a cool tool called the Speed Setter that I really like and uh, makes bit changes a lot faster. So make sure you check them out. Big supporter of the community. So uh, help us support them. And that is pwncnc.com that you can find them at. Yep. Daniel yeah, looks like you, he's getting, getting pretty far ahead with his warehouse there, too. Yeah, so he had a, cool. a, new, a new sticker on the front door there. Looks pretty mm-hmm. official. So yep. happy for <laughs> him. All his racks and everything. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure that place will be filled up in no time. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's exciting that that new warehouse has got. So tonight we have Chris Bathgate. Um, so on Instagram, you just go by C underscore Bathgate, right? That's correct. Um, what it, do you have a, a business name? For, no. Oh, did you just go by? Okay, so no. it's, yeah, because I think I looked up the website and it's just uh, Chris Bathgate. Um, is it sculptures? Yeah, it's chrisbathgate.com, so it's, okay. it's pretty simple. Um, yeah. yeah, I sort of take the um, anti-branding uh, <laughs> okay. a- angle um, in terms of uh, in terms of what I do. It, it, it's sort of, um, you know, I, I kind of come to machine work from a uh, background in fine art. I've come to machine work as a an artist and an individual. And so there are, I've certainly like found my self exploring the trappings of the commercial aspects of machining. Um, but um, in terms of how I present myself, I, I try to be pretty clear that I'm just a guy nice. who's like making stuff. And so um, in, in that vein, I, I'm not really into like, I don't have a logo and I don't have any of that corporate branding because I think nice. I think that's counterproductive to, to what it is I think I'm trying to do anyway. Yeah, I think we could have a, a long conversation about that. <laughs> we had, <laughs> not too long ago, we had an episode basically just about, you know, kind of branding and how, you know, people kind of take advantage of it and the, the brands take advantage of, you know, the quote unquote influencers that are out here, you know, showing off every brand. But, you know, then we got Chris and he shows off every brand. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. well, I, I think no, um, the other Chris. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's going to confuse me throughout this whole thing, but that's fine. Um, but I, I think I, I didn't hear your guys's talk, but I don't know if you guys like touched on this. But you know, I, I mean, for artists, the idea of branding is is a little it's problematic. Like it, it's a double edged sword. Like there's this like desire to brand yourself to I don't know amplify whatever it is you're doing. I guess I, I don't know. I don't know how having a logo and a name when you're just uh, a, a person making stuff achieves that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, in, in I've also like known a lot of machinists who are just one man shops. And, and I think the desire from a commercial aspect uh, to brand and have a logo and have all these trappings is to mask the fact that you're not that as big as you seem. Right. Yeah. That makes and, complete sense. And, I don't know if that helps you. I don't know. I don't know. Cause I'm, I'm not really like in the business. I'm just, I'm an artist who's like, um, I make a living off of my work and I, and I make whatever I want, but I'm not trying to 
I'm not trying to uh, um, present myself as a as a business business. That's like I'm I'm successful and and on that on the trappings of that appearance of success to somehow gain more business. So I'm not really sure. See, I would I, it's all interesting, but I think from the art, artistic standpoint, I think it sort of like I like to buy stuff from artists. Like I like to collect art, but sometimes I am looking at a an artist page and they have all this branding and I'm like, I can't tell. Is this like someone making stuff? Is this a company? Is this somebody outsourcing production? Like I can't tell if this is if I'm actually supporting who I think I'm supporting. So it kind of makes it difficult from an artist standpoint to, to sort that out. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, man, I just had a train of thought and then I lost it in the middle of that. <laughs> but basically, oh, what I was going to say was that like it give, that gives you like the most freedom, I feel like. Because if you're if you're trying to support a brand and, and you know maybe the the brand supports you and it works for both of you guys, that's great. But then you're limited to what you can personally do because you're trying to satisfy the brand or you know all that. But then mm-hmm. you just being Chris Bathgate, Bathgate can make whatever you want. And yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Well, and, and you know, I think a lot of people collect because they want to. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if this. I don't know if this is true or not. I think. I think. A lot of people collect because they want to support me, right? Mm-hmm. They, they, when I, you know, make a sculpture or I make a, a design for a small edition or something, like I post about it and I write, um, you know, what I was thinking, what I was working on, and and all these minute details, and um, and I think that's that's the appeal to a lot of people. And so, what 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 good does putting a veneer of of corporate, I don't know clothes on top of that uh affect anything yeah i mean i I can definitely see it from both ways because i mean when i was just in my garage and i had a brand name and was like this is what i am i kind of felt phony for a while you know because it's like you know here's my name but nobody knows me by my name they know me by this brand logo um (laughs) but then now like it oh sorry go ahead oh no but but now that i'm like actually because i i make um like rotary CNC machines now, like it kind of de- developed mm-hmm. into, into that. And so now, like, I don't think I'd be able to sell them as being just Corey Stanley. If I was like, yeah. Hey, I'm Corey Stanley buy my CNC machine. People would be like, why? <laughs> like, you're not, this doesn't seem legit. <laughs> you know, that just made me, but that made me think of like, when you are an organization and you are identifying under, under an umbrella brand, that makes sense. But like, what are the psychological effects of being a individual who doesn't identify, who identifies as a, a, like, it's like talking about yourself in the third person in a weird way. You know, it's like someone who always says, Chris, you know, Chris Bathgate doesn't like that. And Chris Bathgate doesn't like this. And it's like, (laughs) that's, that's people hear that. And they're like, Oh, there's something weird about that person. So if you start referring to yourself as your corporate entity, like, and you're just, you know, I think that has some weird effect on you. um, And over the long term. Yeah, I can see that. Idea. I hadn't really thought about that before. I am glad yeah. that you don't Seven refer to yourself prices. as Chris Bathgate, though. Yeah, I. That's <laughs> when you know super, someone's ego is awkward. like clicked clicked over to something else. But <laughs> so, like, what exactly was your background to get you down mm. this path? I mean, this this is there's obviously a lot going on here because you're not just a machinist and you're not just you know you know a creative person and whatever like. Uh, well, I, 
So right before we started recording, you talked about how your introduction to machine work was in the Marines. Um, and um, <laughs> we, we have to stop you for one second. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> because if we don't say uh, it was the Navy, we're going to get... I'm sorry, the Navy. <laughs> See? We're going to get so many people messaging. <laughs> no, you're good. We don't it's, care. It's fine. I'm sorry. We, we don't care, but it's the Navy Marines joke that... <laughs> So many people message us oh, and be yeah. like, "Oh, you're okay. in the Marines so now." This so is, this is <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> uh, who put you okay, up to that? so uh, it's, it was inevitable. I, it's best that I just put my foot in my mouth early and get that out of the way. Um, I, I guess what I was trying to say is that you know, a lot most of the people that I interact like meet who are in in the machining community, they're in the machining environment or ecosystem, have had some kind of outside exposure to. Um, these tools in some professional capacity. Um, and I think, I, I don't know, I think my journey is just a little bit, it's a little bit unorthodox. I don't meet a lot of people who kind of have found their way into machine work quite the, the way that I did. And, and um, so I went to an arts high school. Uh, I was a painter, I was a sculptor. I just did, you know, welded things like that. Uh, you know, simple welding and uh, more traditional sculpture. And then I, was like, well, you know, this is really appealing to me. How can I learn, you know, within, within an art school environment, there aren't a lot of uh, technical classes. There's no one that teaches you. Like my introduction to welding was just like uh, my, high, my high school sculpture teacher being grabbing like five kids and be like, hey, there's all this like tanks in the back. Do you guys want to like see if we can figure out how to weld this stuff? And so that was my technical training. Nice. Um, and I thought, you know, okay, so I, this is really, this metalworking is appealing to me, but I don't really know what I'm doing. So how do I learn more skills? And all of my teachers were like, well, you have to go to art college. That's the only way. Um, and so I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll go to art college. So I went to art college and it was just uh, more of the same. It was just uh, art theory, uh, color theory, a lot of like squishy um, uh, aesthetic stuff and, and, and which was all fine, uh, but, it, but I wasn't learning the things that actually were necessary to make art. Like I wasn't learning technical skills. Um, so I went to art school for like one year and I was like, this is weird. I actually got a part-time job at a foundry and in my, so in, you know, when I wasn't in school, I was trying to make money doing bronze casting and, and in this foundry job, I was learning welding, I was learning mold making and all this bronze work. And I was like, well, this seems like I'm learning faster here. Um, and so I, I dropped out of art school for a lot of reasons because I was 19 and I, you know, I met a girl and there's all this other mess, but, but generally it was just like, this isn't working. And so I just dropped out. I just started buying equipment. I, I grew up in like a Baltimore suburb I didn't know anyone in manufacturing. I didn't know, you know, I, I worked on old Volkswagens with a friend. So it was like the closest mm. to that like world of like, you know, we would take an engine in and have it line board, but I never saw it happen. I didn't know like how they did it. Mm. Um, but I just started buying equipment and I just started figuring it out. And a lot of people do that these days, but this was oh, yeah. like, this was like 2000 year, 1999, um, 2000. There was no YouTube. There was no Wikipedia. There was there was just no you know the only thing I could find on metalworking were just like a handful of books that mm -hmm. I could order. I think Amazon was around back then, maybe, and I ordered some books. <laughs> um, and you know, pretty quickly, I was like introduced. I found 
the you know home shop machinist magazine and i was like well what what is this like what are these tools like they were just completely alien to me and you know i just started learning on my own i bought a simple milling uh, like a grizzly milling machine a, and a grizzly lathe um and i just started learning metalwork and and the more i learned you know about how you know it's connected to material science it's connected to physics it's connected to math and i was just like stupefied i was just like why why have i gone through all of this art training and all of this like metalworking classes and and this is why is this alien to me like why is this not a part of the fine arts landscape hmm. and so that's what my work became about and uh, i just became obsessed with learning you know machine techniques um around 2004 2005 um I got a grant from the Pollock Krasner Foundation, um, which is, um, you know, gave, you know, gave me uh, a big chunk of money to build my own CNC tools because, mm. um, you know, for artists, what, what's, how do I want to say this? For artists, you know, affordability is everything, right? Like you can't, mm. <laughs> like, you can't just buy a commercial CNC machine and then make nothing with it. Because oh, yeah. you have to make money if you're going to buy, um, you know, if you're going to buy commercial equipment. Right. And so it had to be homemade. It had to be like handmade equipment. And so I, you know, wrote a grant for that as, as you know, I want these tools to make art and I need to be able to, you know, and I need these experiences to inform that art. And so that's what I did. Um, and so I built the milling machine. I built uh, three lathes. And from there, I just started building my, you know, I built a 3D printer, I built a lot of stuff. But, but during all of those experiments, it was about like, how can these things and how can these exper experiences be bent towards purely this idea of, of, of uh, using these tools and processes for the creation of art mm. and culture production and um, just sort of bringing these tools into the conversation of what is fine art. And I started connecting all of that to... Um, sort of other craft movements, um, you know, there are ceramics, glass making, um, even knife making and, and um, foundry work. All of these things are industrial processes that were used for commercial, you know, commercial output that eventually, uh, you know, artists found their, their, their claws into them and started using them for <laughs> cultural production. And so the idea, you know, as you research the history of machine tools you're like well these tools are over 150 years old they're 200 if you keep that you can kind of find examples you can say they're even 300 years old if you if you loosen your definitions of what machining is yeah but so these these things are these this process is super old but there's no there's no art about it there are artists artists use these tools to make like glass glass artists sometimes you'll use a lathe to to make a tool or um, ceramicists will use a, a you know lathe, and a lot of metal workers and furniture makers use machine tools in an ancillary context, but they're not using them as a medium to make art. Right. And uh, so for me, that's just kind of become what this is about. Like it's been this big thing that like this is uh, it's just a, this big this big gap in in art history and like in our material. Uh, journey as humans, you know, we, we invent the camera for some utilitarian reason, 
but then we're like, oh, we can make art with this. We can make something beautiful with this. Mm. And same goes for video. And, and, you know, every technology that comes along, artists are always like, let's take this and, and make art with it. But then machine work is this big missing thing. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that's what uh, intrigued us the most about, you know, what you're doing is that, you know, I've, I, I've probably been in the machining world for, I don't know, 12, 13 years or something. And, you know, in that time, I've, I've seen a lot of machinists that would call themselves artists just in the way that they would be maybe creative or very, you know, very intuitive about what they're doing, that it's it's almost an art, but it's not, they're not making art. They're not intentionally using the tools to make art. Yeah. And uh, so when uh, I think Toby Southern okay. uh, yeah, referred, too. yeah, referred you to us when he was on a, a few weeks ago and started looking up your stuff and I was like, holy crap, like, yeah. Why have well, I, I never, think, I mean, I think, I, I've I think never Toby, seen anybody doing anything like this. <laughs> I, I think Toby's doing sort of exactly what I'm doing. It just in his own, in his own bubble. And, and that's, and that's what I like about Toby. It's like, she, he's doing sheet metal work. Right. And he's, mm -hmm. he's surrounded by, I mean, the best I can tell, I don't know Toby really well, but I'm like just picking up little bits. It seems like he's surrounded by people who build cars, oh, yeah. uh, but no one, he, you know, he talks about how he just wants to make art, but everyone around him is like, well, why aren't you making cars? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, why aren't you doing what this, this medium was meant for, which is, you know, panel work. And, and, uh, and he's just like, no, I want this to be my medium. I want this to be my art. And I think, so mm -hmm. I, I relate to what, what Toby's doing in that same context. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. Like, I, you know, I meet machinists all the time who like are, creative allow so i'll call it creative adjacent mm -hmm. um you know they've they've sort of been brought up in you know the in the commercial sector like machining things for for money and they have all these ideas of things they want to make but they can't it's the it's like part of their conditioning they can't quite justify it unless it makes the money or unless oh, yeah. it does something or unless it's a it has some justification for existing like if it's a it has to be a pen or a knife or a a thing yeah it has to be a thing a, a yeah. widget or something and that's, so yeah. that's really interesting to me like i'm 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 you know one of the things is i i just want to recruit machinists because i think they're i mean they're there's some of they're, they're smart they're thoughtful they're they're clever people mm -hmm. um and i know that some of them are creative but you know, they're, they're like penned in <laughs> by yeah. Oh, yeah. Their, yeah. Their, their, their environment. And so I just want to be Stop like making widgets. Yeah. yeah. So I just want to make, you know, I'm just trying to make things that inspire people to, to, to do the same, to just look at their medium, to look yeah. at this craft that they've, they've spent their life learning. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so some, I mean, for some of them, they've spent their life learning this to make money, to help other people make money. Um, maybe just for a minute, stop and, think, well, maybe you can just have fun with this and make yourself happy. And, you know, uh, and they, they would probably learn a lot more from trying to do that also, because when you know how to make something, you know, there's a step-by-step -step process for how to make this item or that item. Cause you know, people before you have already figured it out or, you know, there's some kind of a process to making this one item, but when you're going out of your way to make art like you're doing, and mm -hmm. it's not, it's not like it's easy setups probably for what you're doing. Like some of those items you're doing, it doesn't look like anything is 
It doesn't look like any of it's easy. Like it's all. I don't even. I don't even know how I'd hold any of these things. Looking at the yeah, finished yeah, product, just your like, work holding alone. It's well, crazy. yeah. I mean, just on a technical <laughs> note, it's the like you know the, the whole time I've been learning machine work, I've been seeing like you know speed and feed charts for how how heavy of a cut you can take and at what speeds, and none of them apply to me because nothing I ever do is held securely enough to even approach. <laughs> ideal like ideal machining condi- conditions so oh, it's just, yeah. it's all just slow and steady um but uh well wait, wait i want to i wanted to go back to what you were saying and i can't remember what it was now um what were we just what were we just talking about so we're talking <laughs> we were... <laughs> i had a really good thought now it's gone uh, i lost it also no uh we were talking about um you know how typical machinists are kind of they know the process of oh, how right. to make yeah. something but they don't think outside the box. Like they think outside yeah. the box on how to do something, but not enough, you know, to be its own. Yeah. Creative so enough a, to learn yeah. something new. I got another thread there, which is that, you know, when I do like, you know, every once in a while I do go talk to some, you know, I'll do like a corporate event. Like I did a, I did a talk at Akuma um, for one of their um, showrooms hmm. and, you know, the idea that, you know, well, first of all, like, yeah, individually, art, you know, people can get a lot of enjoyment out of making art, but like as a corporation, um, having your team just get together and be like, Hey guys, let's just make anything you want to make. Like just, let's just make up something and make it, you know, it's an incredible skill building opportunity, Mm -hmm. um, for, for teams, because like you said, a lot of businesses, they just make the one thing and they make it over and over again. And no one's learning new skills. No one's like kind of expanding it. But if you just, you know, carve out a little time and just be like, well, let's, you know, let's just come up with something and see if we can figure out how to make it. You know, everyone on the team gets exposure to new processes. Everyone gets exposure to that, that creative mindset and, and it might help them problem solve down the road. Oh yeah. It might help your shop pick up a uh, capacity it didn't have before that could lead to a new job or a new product. And and so like to, to think about, you know, art individually is one thing, but even within institutions, there's, there's a benefit there to like cultivating art projects. Um, yeah. To grow, I think, to grow like what your team can do. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head when you said it's conditioning because, you know, it's, they're obviously, you know, from tech schools, you know, even the, the school I went through in the Navy to be a machinist, like they're, they're pushing productivity, how quickly you can do something, you know, refer back to the manual or whatever, and then, you know, get the next job done, you know, push the next product, uh, you know, and the tech schools especially are, are like, if you want to be successful here, you have to go out and impress people by how many parts you can make and, you know, things like that. But, you know, it seems like a lot of like the companies I worked for, um, they don't want you to learn too much because then they might lose you. And they yeah. want they want you to learn. They want you at the skill level you're at, or maybe they'll teach you just enough to be productive for them. But then after that, it's like, you know, you're like, well, you know, I'm a pretty good uh, machinist, but maybe I want to be a programmer. And they're like, no, 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 no. We have a programmer. No, you just <laughs> you just keep machining. It's like, but I feel like I could be more useful if I knew how to program and machine. And they're like, no, nah, no, nah, you just you just you just keep machining over there, <laughs> you know, because mm-hmm. then your competition, you want to go to a different company after that. So yeah, I mean, that's the that's the sinister side of it that I don't I don't have a lot of experience <laughs> with that. I, in terms of, you know, it, 
I, I'm I'm just interested in communicating to individuals, and anyone who's in that situation should just leave anyway. <laughs> like, right. You know, um, I, I say you know, you know if you are, I mean, if you're like, it, I would advocate for everyone who's in the machining trades to buy their own little equipment if they really want to mess around with it because it's the same. It's the same situation. Like, yeah, you could, you know, I'm not advocating everyone make art, but like, you can learn you can learn more at home. You can learn whatever you want at home. And then you now have more marketable skills to go out and get a better opportunity. So yeah, your, your employer didn't want to teach you programming. Well, just go (laughs) learn programming without them, you know, like go figure it out. Um, I mean, and so, uh, you know, that's what I did. I don't, I don't actually have any qualifications to work for anybody. (laughs) You know, everything I have done is so self-taught that it's really its own, you know, it's its own language. It's its own mm-hmm. thing. Like my programming, I can make the machines do exactly what I want, but it's not in the proper programming <laughs> format. It's not like any programmer would look at that and be like, this is a monstrosity. But um, awesome. we, we were talking about that the other day, actually, because, you know, people are, and I think a lot of it's from the internet, like comments and stuff that you'll get when you talk about something or post something, they're discouraged from like self-discovering how, to do stuff or how stuff works. You know, they think like, or, or people, uh, you know, people on the other side think that, oh, this is how this is done. And that's the only way this is done. And I think that loses a lot. You know, there's not, there's nothing wrong with figuring it out on your own, you know, mm-hmm. obviously, yeah, I guess if you're trying to be a professional machinist and go into a machine shop and knock out, you know, a million widgets in a day, then yeah, okay, I guess you need to follow those rules a little closer. But when you're just, you know, the guy at home making what he wants and enjoying it, like, I, I don't see what the problem is. Yeah, actually, what I do, pro- so one of the things, so when I program, I don't use, like, to, to make this about programming, like, I don't use line numbers, and I don't use, like, I use a lot of subprograms. Like, when you see, like, the output of a CAM software, it's a million lines of, like, single point linear mo- movements. It's, 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 um, it's intimidating. Like anyone who is a novice can look at that and be like, I can't wrap my head around that. Mm-hmm. But when I write code, you know, like I, I do some cam outputs and stuff like that, but a lot of times I'll just write it by hand and mm. I'm interested in making the code as short and as elegant as possible. So I'll take the same part program and what the cam puts out is 5,000 lines and I'll make it 50, you know, there's a little bit of wasted motion, but it's a lot of subprograms. There's no line numbers. Um, there's just a couple of labels. And it's because it makes that code make sense to people. Like people just look at it and they see these huge numbers. But if you just see X position, Y position, Z position, that makes sense intuitively to most people who have any little familiarity with like a coordinate system and a couple of, you know, M, M commands. And, and if you just make it really simple like that, it makes it accessible to people. And so like I write code the way I want to see it because I want it to make sense to me. And so um, if I'm trying to explain that to somebody else, um, it's the same same thing. Um, I was working on a project with um, some friends of mine and, and they had output the code in a CAM software and they were, um, it wasn't, there was, a, there was a mistake in there and they were trying mm. to fix it. 
Um, and they just kept going back to the drawing and they kept going back. I'm like, let's just look in there and find it. It's just one line. Let's just find it. Like, let's just delete it. And they're like, you can't just delete the, the one. You can't just delete it. It'll completely mess everything <laughs> up. I'm like, no, it's just, yeah, you just delete it. It's just a, an extra little motion. Just delete it. And they're just like the idea that they could edit the code themselves without mm. the computer, like checking it for them was kind of scary to them. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I can see that. I actually yeah. have a story that goes along with that today. And uh, so we're making these, um, it's called a shark fin. So it's a like an AK, AK-47 foregrip. And mm-hmm. it looks like a little shark fin on the bottom of it. And we're making these in the, the rotary CNC. So we had a, a little aluminum fixture that it sits on, that that's the axis, and that it spins on that. Um, and it... It ran through the program perfectly. I had contoured it out on the 3X machine before that. So there's like no extra stock really. And uh, so it's running through there, cuts the whole uh, shape of it. Looks beautiful. Everything works perfectly. <laughs> and then it goes to the very end. It, it raises up like three inches. And then it just comes right back down into the, into the part. Before yeah. I could even stop it, it just goes over. It's like, and the chuck just hits all the way against the uh, shark fin part. I'm like, Oh, that's fun. You know, that's just, that's a, yeah, one, that's just one like line a, of code. It's like a homing error, right? <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. And always, I mean, that just came from us trying a new post processor and we're like, yeah, it looks good. And then, you know, if we would have ran through the, the G code and looked at the end, it would have been like, oh, Z zero. No, that's that's inside the part. That would be bad. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, uh, the cam knows best and just not in this case. Yeah, I yeah, I guess. Uh, I, whenever I see people running older machines that have no visualizer of any kind on them, I'm like, why would that, why would that, why would you have that? Like <laughs> the first thing you want to do is be able to kind of just eyeball it and see how mm. it looks. But yeah, same, same thing. Yeah. So yeah. like, what is your design process like for making these? Are you just starting in like your a cam software? Are you kind of already have an idea in your head? Like, hmm. what's that? I, I'm, there's a, I think there are a couple of ways that like, things come about but um i guess the most um common one is that you know there's um i talked earlier about how as i was learning machining um i was kind of turning those um machine building like those skill building exercises into sculpture right everything that i did earlier on was an excuse to learn something um and that just sort of morphed into as i'm designing uh, a piece or trying to problem solve how to machine something or hold things like it just sort of that process suggests other challenges it suggests other questions whether it's like well you know you're, you're trying like you're trying to figure out how to machine a shape and you come up with three ways to, that you could possibly do it but you only ultimately pick one well you can save those other two and put them in your back pocket and use them on a different project for a different design um, so that's one way you just sort of like bank ideas as you work. Um, and then, you know, I guess another, you know, and, and so, so I think that's, that's the main way I actually just banking ideas, like every sculpture that I make, you, you get about three ideas out of it. So you're just accumulating, accumulating like exponentially like things that, that, uh, like build up and then you can kind of mix them together. And when you're trying to come up with new ideas, um, the other thing that I've been doing, I guess, in the last um, eight or nine years is, is this like very intentional outreach to the machinist community, which is these design editions. I make these small editions of like fidgety si- sort of artwork 
Um, and it's not, it, and, and it's, I mean, there are a lot of um, makers and companies that are, you know, in that space making lanyards and small, like machined um, decorative objects. Um, mm -hmm. But for me, it's really just sort of um, an excuse to, to kind of um, take this idea of art making and very, very intentionally be like, well, what are machinists making and how can I kind of connect my my idea of what I'm doing to what their idea of what they're doing is. So it's, it's really just about bridge building. So I've been making up a, a bunch of series of small works that are just really intentionally like um, homages to trends that I see in the machinist community. So um, at that, for that, at that point, I am sort of stealing little nuggets of ideas and then, you know, like pouring my sensibility into it. Nice. So like, uh, I, I know what you mean about your little the, your fidget thing because what's the uh, the one you're working on that you just posted a video of kind of mm -hmm. how it goes together uh, that looks kind of like a like a cicada maybe is that like <laughs> is that kind of like any um, influence there or? it's not so nothing nothing I do is intentionally uh, how can I say this everything about machining has references right mm -hmm. like um, it references. Um, designed objects, it references functional objects. It like you look, it's like um, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, user, you know, like the, like it's it's got a built-in user interface language, which is like you know when you make a coffee pot, like if you're a product designer and you design a coffee pot, you make it in such a way that people can kind of figure out how to use it without reading the manual. Gotcha. Right, that's intentional. Um, but if you are designing, um, even if you're designing art um, in this sort of machining environment, the things that you make have to work. I mean, things have to fit together. They have to yeah, screw yeah. together. They have to fasten. And so they're still built like those designed objects, even if they are nothing. Um, and so it's about like recognizing when something you're designing starts to look like something and mm -hmm. then just kind of sort of, resisting the urge to, to make that thing. So it, it can look insect-like, that's fine. It can look machine-like, and that's also fine, but it can't look like a bug and it can't look like a machine. It it has to be right on that uh, edge so, so that... Uh, do you ever get frustrated? Because I'm sure like sub subconsciously, it's just so easy to know the rules of what you're supposed to be making and be like, yeah, this is what I'm doing. And then you're like, ah, dang it. I didn't want to do that. <laughs> like you get too far down the road and you're like, ah, yeah, this looks I mean, like something I've seen a few years ago. And I there's just no, about it. I, I, I guess it, I, there's no avoiding the sci-fi aesthetic reference. Like the biggest thing I get is like, everyone's like, this looks like spaceships. Oh, okay. um, but the, I mean, the reason for that is, is simply that, you know, the golden age of sci-fi was just like, you know, set designers just, just yeah they're just like well give me a you know go to the hardware store buy 50 drills and 50 <laughs> things and we'll we'll glue them all together and we'll paint them silver um and that will be you know the ray gun or that'll be the ship that'll be the you know so that at like that entire aesthetic is is sort of unintentional in, in the sense that they're just sort of borrowing objects that are made with this exact same, same design principle, which is like when you're machining something, you have to be able to turn it and access it and, 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 uh, mill geometry into something to make something. And so there's a shared aesthetic. And so you just have to kind of lean into that without becoming 
it. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. Like, like I'm not going for sci-fi, but I know that it's in the DNA of just the shapes that these machines make. Oh yeah. And yeah. so you just, you just got to come to terms with that and then try and tr- transcend that in any way that you can. So I'm going to ask about one other sculpture I saw. And that was the one that's like a, like, it almost looks like a, like a shell in mill. Like, is that kind of where you got the, <laughs> the inspiration for that one? Maybe it's like got all the, uh, like, cylinders that slide out from it on the you know that's like a, a big shell but to me it looks like one of those clamshell end mills i mm-hmm. didn't know if that's like you're making it and you're like oh yeah this is like a crazy looking end mill <laughs> it's hard to kind of it's hard to kind of decouple like what inspiration you're picking up directly from the tools i think mm-hmm. one of the you know very very early on i was just trying to sort of come to grips with how you know how these how these machines work and how these machines hold things and turn things and so I you know early, like early design was was intentionally very lathe like you know and it was just sort of my way of like coming like understanding like um, I, I don't know a lot of my earlier pieces were like really like intentionally like very uh, obviously inspired by the things I was learning and I gotcha. think I think that happens less now but but um, I don't know. I'm not, I'm agnostic on that, I think, is what I'm trying to say. Like, I, I still get good ideas directly from my my tools and my machines. And so um, I'm not, a, yeah. I don't think, I think everything is like so many layers. You know, yeah. it's kind of hard for me as the artist to separate them and say, yes, that was a shell mill. But yeah. I think it was like, <laughs> I had one idea and it started to become a shell mill. And then it started to become, you know, and I was like, well, let me throw in a couple more things that I was thinking about. And so it's... nice. And yeah, I, I like that there. I like that they're sculptures, but they're also like functional. Like they have motion. You know yeah. what I mean? Like they're like you said, they're fidgety kind of, but you know they have. They're more than just looking cool. They move and do things. Yeah, and cool. when you and when you you know when you talk to you know uh, movie makers or anyone you know the, um, or, or other artists, they, a lot of them you know will talk about how you like you just if you have just one idea that's boring, right? But if you have two ideas that complement each other, that's a little more interesting. And, and you really only have to add, you know, one or two or three different like layers of complexity and things just get really, really rich and vibrant after that. Like complexity Mm -hmm. arises from just a few small, like elemental things. So, you know, it doesn't take much. And, And that's, what's interesting about machining is that you can just um, set up a really simple, boring operation and repeat it a couple of times and then change directions and do like a similar, you're just layering a couple of very simple geometric paths. And all of a sudden you have this really complex object. And that's just like a really nice metaphor for how, you know, like that's a metaphor for how conceptual art is made too. It's just, hmm. um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's definitely interesting, especially your journey of how you got into it. And you're coming from a completely different approach than most people, you know, mm-hmm. like Chris is going to an art school now and he's been, you know, the opposite kind of, of going through the trades and, and everything before that. And then coming around to going to art school now. Yeah. So like, mm-hmm. what do you think about that, Chris, just being a whole complete well, opposite so spectrum? I, I, I always felt like I was missing out on something by not having, you know, like, the the foundation like color theory and mm-hmm. just being able to like draw and know you know stuff like that like i'm i'm enjoying 
actually learning that stuff. But yeah, I guess you do look at it from a different point of view now. You know, I couldn't imagine going through this at 19 and, and, you know, right out of high school with none of my prior experiences. Like I just, I don't, it it wouldn't have felt as like practical, you know, or, or I wouldn't have been able to actually relate it to anything real. You know, it would have just been learning it for the sake of learning it. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess I'm not trying to put down um, art school. I, I think I just had the benefit of going to an arts high school. Hmm. Um, so I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I told some kid the other day, there's no way that I would have gone to the school I'm going to at 19. Like, yeah. I just wouldn't have done <laughs> it, you know, and I wouldn't recommend anybody to do it even like I, f- I feel like, you know, you need experiences with stuff and, and you need to, you know, learn stuff like stuff on your own, you know, before you, you try to pick like a path like that. Yeah. I think some of my classmates were there because they needed time to figure out what they wanted to do. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a more, I think that's a a better use of college. Like if you really are just trying to figure it out. Um, I was just not in that, in that position. Like I went into college being like, I, I, I know what I want to make. Like I want to get my hands dirty. I want to make these, these, you know, metal sculptures, I have all these designs in this sketchbook. Mm-hmm. And I get there and they're like, stop, you have to learn the basics first. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, so that wasn't a good fit for me. Like I was ready to run and they wanted me to, to, to slow down. And I didn't, mm. it didn't, it wasn't great for me. Yeah, but, I, um, I guess that I, you know, I would like to see what like, I don't know, I, I consider my school is kind of different. So I would like to see what a actual, you know, strict art program would have been like. I bet to I compare bet, it to. I bet your program is better than the one that I was in. So yeah. in nineteen in nineteen ninety-nine, um, most fine art programs that in like uh for for you know fine art colleges mm-hmm. um were were still pretty traditional, like you're going to just do painting, you're going to do sculpture, yeah. you're going to do clay, you have to pick one. They're in these like silos where you they you don't mix. Like if you're in ceramics, you're in ceramics. Mm-hmm. And you don't learn painting. You don't. And like now, like, every college is just like, they've got maker spaces, and it's all cross disciplinary. And it's all just like mixed up. And it's awesome. So like, I bet whatever, mm-hmm. like, I bet 95% of like art programs are better than yeah. the one I was in. And which is which is great. I'm glad, but like you know, that's just that was just my my journey through it, and uh, wasn't a, a great fit. And I'm glad because I'm glad because I I really like I think you know I think just sort of once you're comfortable with the idea that you can learn anything yourself, mm-hmm. like you just never you just never stop. Like yeah, it's just addictive. like yeah. <laughs> It makes so, you definitely not want to work for somebody else and make them yeah. money and, and just do boring things when you know you can kind of chase your own dream or you're capable of it. And well, uh, yeah, and it's it's scary, right? Like just working for yourself. And like, even though I've found a certain amount of success, um, you know, over the last 10 years, like just, just doing my thing, it's still, <laughs> it's still not any less scary, you know, like oh, to, yeah. to figure out like one day, like interest could just fall off and that's that like and then you have to just do something else and yeah I think that's um part of like what gets you through it though is that when you have that drive and you're passionate about what you're doing is that when you have a problem come up 
like you just have to get through it to, to, mm-hmm. to move on and, and follow your passion. But like when you, you hit a bump in the road and you're doing something you don't enjoy already, you're just like, man, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit doing this. <laughs> I think, um, I guess the other side of that though, is like a lot of artists who are working for themselves kind of get stuck in the rut where they, they're doing a, a range of things. Um, and one of those things starts to make them money. And so they just turn all their attention to that thing that makes them money. Mm. Um, and then five years down the road, they hate that thing, but yep. they're still doing that thing. And that's all they do. And they're like, you know, it's really, uh, that's a whole different like oh, yeah. consideration. <laughs> like, e- even if you do get the guts to say, I'm going to do what I want mm-hmm. and um, take a chance on myself, then you have to have the guts to stay stay neutral to be like I, i'm going to do what i want not what makes me money like right um and so i you know i know a lot of artists but and not even artists though but like makers and entrepreneurs and people who are like in that gray area where they're doing creative things who who you know very quickly fall into that like i just gotta oh, pay yeah. the bills and exactly and, and they're kind of you know i think that uh, a lot of times they don't see that that holds them back like because Obviously, if you're going to chase it, you have to pay the bills. You have to provide for your family if if you have one and, and, you know, keep the lights on. But I I think I think you're right how that applies a lot to the maker community and and the fact that they get like, what's what can make me money that I like to do? And then they find that one thing and they're like, this is me. This is I'm building my identity around this thing that I'm Mm -hmm. making. Um, I'm going to make the best cutting boards out there and I'm going to just keep making them. And then they they don't really chase the thing they're actually passionate about that could do better for them because they could be more creative about the thing they really enjoy and they could make their name about that other thing. Like if they got to the point where they were making sculptures and people were like, wow, that's super creative and very cool. Like, you know, you could get paid more for your time by doing the thing you actually want to do. I think than the thing that you kind of get like pigeonholed into doing because it just made money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's two things there. There's the there's the, the 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 person who just wants to have the one idea. Like I I don't know how else to describe it. There's like the one idea guy I've oh, met yeah. many times. They they want to have their one good idea and then just make that thing forever and never have to think again. Right? Like it's just going to be there. <laughs> they're just going to turn it into a money machine and like throw up their feet and that's it. And like, that doesn't work anymore because people will eat your lunch. Like, Oh yeah. As soon as you're making money, one thing, as soon (laughs) as someone sees you making money, they're going to, they're going to make other people are going to make that thing. Yeah. Uh, The other thing is that, you know, this, there's analogy to just to like startup culture. They're, you know, entrepreneurs who they just love that early phase where they're developing a a Mm -hmm. product and they're trying to make it work and they're trying to get traction and like, and as soon as the business is humming along, they're they're done. They're not interested anymore because oh, yeah. that's the exciting part. Well, that's the exciting part of art making too. That's the that's the thing that sustains you. It's like you're in that idea phase. You're trying to figure out how to make it work. You're trying to take this thing that's in your head and make it real. And that's exciting. And so you have to you have to cultivate that and just carry that forward. So like, you know, I tell a lot of people like, just do what you love because even if you're broke, at least you'll be happy. You know, that that's a cliche, but, but really it's just like, if you just 
do that thing, that thing that makes you excited, then it like other people will feel that excitement and be excited about your work. But if you get in yourself into a rut where you feel it's getting stale, like other people are gonna, it's gonna start to show in one way mm. or another. And like your interest yeah, that, in what that you're doing translates. Is, yeah, it's it's got to be there. So um, I just, I, I you know, I, I don't. <laughs> I'm very careful about giving advice to artists, but I'm just like, like, just, just, you just got to do whatever it is that like moves you and don't care about the money. And hopefully, you know, at least you have to be savvy, but, yeah. but the money will, like, if you can be savvy and just do the thing that gets you excited, the money should come. I'm not going to say that it will come because there's a lot of weird art that there's just no market for. <laughs> um, and, and if you're one of those artists that's like, you're making something really niche and weird and it, you know, you should know yourself well enough to know that that's not going to make you money and you just need another plan. I'm not going to tell you not to make that art because that's important to you. And that's the world needs weird art. That's not commercially viable, but you need to be self-aware enough to like come up with a, a plan to, to sustain that too. Yeah. I, I would say like the smart way to do that it would be like to try to find, you know, be, be different in what you're doing and lean on as many skills as you can and like keep pushing to learn new school skills that that put you in your own arena kind of because it looks like there's a lot of people that they'll, they'll learn a few skills and then they're mm -hmm. on the same playing field as everybody else. And then they're trying to make money in the same area. But if you stack those skills and you start doing things that involve multiple um, mediums, you start to like push away from them, right? Like you get like a, your own kind of thing going on. And then I think from there, like the more skills you have and the more creative you are, you'll find that thing. Mm -hmm. But obviously in the meantime, you have to, if you're doing this and you have to make money, you have to make something that will sell also. So yeah. there, there is like a delicate balance to it. I, yeah. I don't know what the, yeah. I mean, so it's like from like to just full disclosure, like person, like my personal journey, like, you know, I didn't, you know, I started making these machine sculptures in, uh, I would say around two, like I really transitioned to doing machining like around 2002. I didn't make a dime until <laughs> maybe 2008, 2009 off of my work. So, you know, I just had a day job and um, luckily we had a four, like we just worked four, four, 10 hour days. So we just, I had a four day work week for my day job. And then I had a three day work week in my studio. So I just did mm -hmm. 40 hours for my boss. And then I did 30 hours for me. And I just did that for 11 years. You know, I just did 70 hours of work for 11 years before I was like, able to eat together enough of a living to quit that day job, and just do this full time. And then I just tried to hang on to that and like, <laughs> keep that 70 hours for myself you know, and eventually, like, as I got older and got married, I dialed that back a little bit, but I still work, you know, wait, you know, when you work for yourself, you're not really working, but I'm always working. But Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so when I talk to, like, people are like, you know, machinists are like, I love what you do. Like, if I make this, like, how quickly can I make money? I'm like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> like. Do you ever nine, have people, nine years? Uh, Probably taking nine years. I don't know. <laughs> do you ever have people ask you for like your models or anything like that? Like, hey, how, can I can I make that? <laughs> Sometimes uh, it's not super common though. I think most people are pretty respectful. But um, I have, I I made uh, a chess set 
um, mm. that is this like I don't normally make things that are that functional, but I made a chess set and it was, mm-hmm. you know, it's very popular. It's the, it's the thing that like I'm perennially contacted about. Like people are like, this is amazing. Can you make me one? And I'm like, I've made, I made one and that's it. That was enough. <laughs> but somebody wanted that chess set so bad that they hired, I don't know who they hired a designer to just take the pictures and develop a 3d model of it based on photographs. And then he 3d printed one. Mm. Um, and then he started trying to sell them like, <laughs> and actually, I actually have one. So this is one of the, um, so it's like a 3d print. That's the Rook. Um, mm-hmm. it just doesn't look, it's just, doesn't, it doesn't carry the same. Mm. Oh, I yeah. mean, it wouldn't even feel the same. I think yeah, that's it doesn't, whole, it doesn't work. The whole in, part of it isn't just the look. Sand. It's, it's everything. It's, you know, you can pick it up and touch it and, and feel the real. Part. I don't know if this is going to, the other thing is, I, I don't know if this translates. It's actually kind of oval shaped. It's not round. So mm. it's not even in person. It's really obvious. Um, I don't know. What the, I don't, the point I was trying to make there, it, it's just that, um, you well, know. your designs aren't meant to be three D printed. They're they're yeah. meant to be the yeah. way you've made them, and it doesn't carry the same feel and 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 it, it, just, it changes the whole thing. Yeah, I'm okay with. I'm actually okay with people taking my ideas and making it theirs. You know, mm-hmm. changing it like all of the kinetic things that I've done, like those mechanisms. I I think a few of them are novel, but you know they're they're not really something that I, I I feel like I should lay claim to like if other people want to do stuff with that like go go nuts just make it yours don't make mine um, because I, I am really interested in this idea that you know uh, do we have time I don't know how long you guys want to talk oh, to me we've got as much time as you um, want yeah so like I you know I just as I was like studying machining I started looking at I, I kind of touched on it I started to look at other industrial crafts like ceramics and and glasswork and um all of those vocations have like a very tight um body of craft forms that everyone makes like wood turners all turn bowls glass blowers all blow the same thing to learn their craft um you know they all they all have this like very small vocabulary of of things you make to learn that trade and machining just doesn't have that right there's not like all machinists just have this one thing that they make and that sort of bugs me (laughs) i don't know like as an artist like it it's like i want there to be these craft forms so like if i if i can design something that like a bunch of machinists are really excited to reproduce and make to learn like from i'm i'm for it you know i'm i'm pro like if stealing my ideas and designs gets people to learn and experiment, then that's good. Like, and so that's sort of how I feel about it. Yeah. And it's not like that they would be impractical parts to try to achieve. Like they don't have to just be an artist. Like if you, if, if one of your parts was like on like Titans of CNC as like an aerospace part that you were trying to achieve, like that, that could be a thing that you would have to think outside the box and try to fixture this one item. Cause it's going into the, Hubble telescope or something mm-hmm. crazy like that. Like it's kind of a, would be a good exercise. For <laughs> that, that does remind me. So like what I, I, I mentioned that I gave a talk at Okuma um, a couple of years ago. And when I met their engineers, they like, I brought a bunch of sculpture works with me and they, and their engineers came up and they were just like, they just pointed at my work. So like all of these edges are just impossible to deburr. Like, how do you like, I'm like, 
I just deburr them. I just do the work. <laughs> and they're just like, no, no, no. How do you program it? I'm like, no, I don't. I just have to be just finish it by hand and it was like really it bothered them but um they're like think of the man hours like no that's right that's not what it's about yeah that's funny all right well real quick let's uh go ahead and talk about our patrons so we've got a patreon if you'd like to support us over there you can find us at patreon.com slash makeshift podcast made a couple levels that you can help support us at and uh, we're actually about to have to start paying to use this uh, Zencaster. It looks like they don't want to give it away for free anymore. So uh, all that will help, you know, pay for stuff like that. So we really appreciate the support. We also read everybody's name off every week. So we've got Keith Drennan of Blackthorn Concepts, Ed Johns of ButtJoints.com, JJ's Repair, Green Street Joinery, Michael Nye, Vincent Ferrari, Brenda, Chad's Custom Creations, Mike from Pixels to Prototype, Toby Mural, Merle of UK Knife Maker <laughs> Supply, Henry Davis of H21 Metalworks, Woodland Iron, David Beckwith, Matthew from Archiano Serio, Jake Largan of Metal Chef's Custom, MaritimeKnifeSupply.com, Adam Coonrat, David Wood, The Grant Alexander, Austin Saunders, Brad at Brad's Customs, and Jeff Stein, a weird guy. Thanks a lot, guys. We really appreciate the support. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah, hitting on that Zencaster being uh, paid for now. I, I saw, I don't know if you've been seeing the emails, but they've been sending them out about like, they're trying to get like it to be um, investor owned kind of, like they wanted you to invest in it and then you get paid back from it. And so I was, I was curious if this is where it was going. Like it was going to be like, oh yeah, now now we're going to charge people even more. <laughs> so. Yeah, I wonder what the, um, you know, the, the user threshold is for when they, they feel like, okay, now's the time we're going to charge money and alienate like half of our users and we can still make money on who's left. Yeah. So every business makes that like, you know, jump where they're just like, okay, we're going to lose. I don't know. They, I guess they have it plotted out, but we're going to lose like 70% of our users, but the other 30 will sustain us. Yeah. There, there must be like a big change with podcasts going on because like Anchor is a hosting service that a lot of us use. It's what we use. And Spotify just bought them. So yeah, I saw that. there's they someone somewhere must see the money in, you know, well, we're what we're doing basically. Every, yeah. every five minutes. So here's another ad now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully not. I've, I mean, we've been able to but... keep that button off. So. Hopefully that doesn't become something that's not a option in the future. If we don't start getting patrons, you're going to hear some Coca-Cola commercials in here. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Wouldn't it just like pop up as like a little ticker? Like uh, <laughs> I, I've heard some ads where they now. legit will have, or you know, it'll be like the the hosts will be talking, and then it'll just be a straight like ad read. Oh, and then yeah, other I'm ones, people oh, really? are smart about it. Like they'll just be like, like a uh, was it a like housemaid? They like they only have sponsors that they support also so or not housemates sorry uh work for it podcast mm-hmm. um you know it'll be like they support the sponsor they believe in the product so it's easy to be like oh yeah i can believe in that product too because you know it's not just some somebody paying the money to say how good they are <laughs> so well as long as they're not like you know augmenting reality like hats on us <laughs> like coca-cola hats or yeah, not yet. Know, like yeah. weird clothes and stuff we'll be okay not far off, I'm sure. <laughs> <sighs> All right. Well, what do you guys think? You got anything else? I I, I don't know. Like, 
I don't. Like I, could, I said, the world if, is. If you, you if you, you can talk about this, is your stage. I mean, I feel like we could definitely talk about more stuff, or you know, whatever. You just gotta, you just gotta give me like uh, somewhere to get a hook into it, and I can probably <laughs> run for another half an hour. So, <laughs> um, do you want to talk about, um, you know, just like scalability, like scaling equip, like scalable equipment? I don't, I don't know what you want to talk about, like, like, um, in terms of like. I don't know, like, so like, you know, early on, I built a lot of CNC tools and myself, but now I have a bunch of um, like Tormach machines and stuff that aren't like, mm-hmm. they're not super fancy, but they're, mm-hmm. I didn't build them. And they're sort of on that line between like, what is reasonable for an artist or a maker to afford? I don't really know. I don't, I'm not trying to turn it into an ad <laughs> for, for Tormach or anything, but um that is something I was going to ask you about, and I forgot about like just what equipment you use. Yeah. Um, uh, so m- the majority of your stuff is on like a Tormach, or you you brought you mentioned Akuma. So do you have oh my an Akuma? Gosh. I wish they would let me borrow something, but no. <laughs> so my shop my shop is in is actually in my basement. So okay. uh, it be kind of hard to get it down there. <laughs> it's, it's definitely I'm in that space where, um, you know getting it through the door is my, my biggest constraint. And so, you know, see if you even uh, Haas, like even Haas, like I, I just look like, like Haas automation. I'm like, why don't they like, how hard are these to take apart? Maybe I could get one of these down here. But they're <laughs> this, all, this is, this is where the machinists that go for the money are going to chime in and be like, well, if you'd make parts that made money, <laughs> you'd have your own massive shop making, well, <laughs> I don't want to, whatever machine you want. Yeah, no, I don't. Yeah, I don't want to spoil <laughs> that, but I am slowly getting getting to that that nice. building my own shop thing. But that's um, awesome. So that, I mean, that's kind of a question on its own, though, because most machinists, you know, they're kind of trained in that thought of like, well, I'm supposed to start with this machine, mm-hmm. I'm supposed to build this product, and then I'll move on to this machine because it's the next level and it can yeah. make higher production items, and then I'll move to this, and then I'll get a bigger shop, and then I'll hire people, and then you know, that's kind of the goal is like, how big can you make a shop before you're comfortable? And you're like, this is where I want to stay and make this. Uh, I I think that's a really good line of thinking because that does tie into, I, you know, I meet people who want to get into machining, but they're just like, well, I'm just waiting to find a really good deal on a used something, you know, Mm -hmm. some, some fancy machine that they can kind of get a a good deal on, but they don't, they don't know the first thing about machining. Um, Yeah. They just think they need this awesome tool because it'll make awesome work. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just, it's just not true. Just buy like anything, like literally, like I don't, if you want to start, if you want to start, yeah. like, how much money do you have? Do you have $2,000? You can set up a machine shop for $2,000. It's going to be crap equipment, <laughs> but you can start. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I mean, that's what I did. I, you know, um, and that's what, um, oh, I think, uh, John Saunders is a good example of yeah. that. If you follow him where he started in his New York apartment with a tiny little Chinese three axis mill making, uh, like target stand parts, you know, like a shooter target where the, the target would fall down mm-hmm. and then it would pop back up. Like yeah. That was kind of where he started. And I, you know, and, and I talked to people and they're like, well, I don't want any import you know, junk or just buy it, just, just do buy anything like to start and make stuff and learn. And like, um, like my, my, yeah, my first milling machine cost like 1200 bucks. And my first lathe was like 700 bucks. 
and I learned a ton and I made a bunch of cool stuff. And, you know, my, my first little grizzly lathe, it's a nine, little nine by 20. It's, it's terrible for cutting metal, but, um, <laughs> you know, I learned on it and then I got a bigger lathe and then I turned that into my first little experiment with a CNC lathe. So it was this little metal cutting lathe and it's, you know, I made a bunch of pieces with it. It's still cut metal terrible because the spindle's <laughs> not rigid, but yeah. Uh, now I just, it's in the back of my shop. I've tried to throw it away a hundred times, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And it's sitting in the back of my shop now and it's turning wood. I'm using it to turn oh, yeah. wood parts on my current project. It cuts wood beautifully. It cuts wood oh, yeah. great because it's, it's not rigid enough to cut metal, but it's super rigid for cutting wood. Right. And, you know, just it, it found its place, you know, and I'm, and it's, and the build on it, the, the controller on it is this. It's just jammed inside an old computer case and there's wires hanging everywhere and none of mm -hmm. none of the um you know limit switches work at all but it doesn't <laughs> really matter because i know the envelope and even if it crashed it wouldn't hurt it would their motors aren't powerful right, enough to stop. do any damage it would just stop <laughs> yeah and um and that's actually ideal and i, and I think and i want to come back to to my tormac machines which are like you know i guess the next step up um you know, for some, for some makers is that they all run on, they're all pretty rigid machines. They all do a great job for what I'm doing. Um, but they have stepper motors on them. And a lot of people are like deal breaker, you know, mm. but you can crash these things all day and not break them. Like they just, when you crash a stepper motor, it just slips yep. and your machine is still working. And if you're going to learn, like, why would you want a machine that's going to self-destruct if you make a mistake? Right. That's what you want. You want a machine that you can just drive the head into the table and <laughs> and then just pick it back up and keep working. Like maybe you have yep. to replace the cutter, but like that's that's where you should be trying to like cut your teeth, you know, and yeah, yeah. figure yeah. it out. And like you said about rigidity though, and that that in itself is a powerful lesson. Like if you're starting with a machine that isn't as rigid, you see where the faults are in rigidity, like mm -hmm. where where it's gonna fail. And you learn uh, cheaper that way yeah. than if you bought a Haas and you crashed it and you destroy the head on it. And you're like, oh, man, now it's going to cost twice <laughs> and, the machine. And, to and fix you learn it. a lot about harmonics, too, like <laughs> oh, because yeah. you can you on a cheap tool, you pick up chatter mm -hmm. for all sorts of crazy reasons. And you just you just learn to work around it and you learn a lot. And then you, when you finally do get that nice tool, you're like, oh, my God, no wonder, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. like and. And that's, you know, that's a really, I, I don't know, like it's, it doesn't make business sense if like your idea is like, I'm going to get this thing and ramp up to a million parts a year, like fine, uh, that's not for you. But like, if you're in this other in-between space, like just, there's no harm in, in going any of these routes and a lot of, and even now, like I still, like, if you look around for like the low end CNC market, there really isn't a good big format lathe that you can like get a 36 inch piece between centers and and turn on it like um, you know tormac only makes you know a tool changer slant bed thing that's it can't hold anything long it doesn't have a tailstock or it does have a tailstock but it's crap um <laughs> so like i have a 14 by 40 i will i will call it a semi import lathe which means it's it all the castings are you know chinese but the I think the fit and finish was done in the States and it's mm -hmm. an okay machine. 
Um, it was my second manual lathe, but it's, I turned it into a, you know, CNC with servo motors and all that stuff. And it's my workhorse. It's the only thing I can get anything big on with like an eight inch swing over the saddle and some length. Like there's just nothing on the low end market that can really do that envelope for an artist or like a hobbyist. So, Mm -hmm. um, in some cases it still does make sense to build your own kit. So, and I think there are better kits out there. I guess I should, yeah, kind of touch on that too. You know, like when I was (laughs) trying to figure this stuff out, there was just like the only resource I found was like these like industrial message boards, Mm -hmm. um, that were, um, it was like, I was, I was just building machines around like Mach 3. I don't know if you know what Mach 3 CNC software mm-hmm. is. It's just sort of a multi-purpose machine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure everybody knows what it is. But uh, so like <laughs> they had, they had like links to these message boards and I would go on there and it was just like, you know, factory guys. Um, so there was no YouTube. There was no Wikipedia. It was just like me on there going, hey guys, I want to build this thing. Like I want to make art. And they're all just like, what the hell are you doing on here? <laughs> like, what are you? Good job, kid. Yeah, they're like, <laughs> and I, you know, I'd be like, well, I'm, I'm just trying to, you know, learn this thing. And like a lot, you know, there were a lot of, you know, there were a lot of old timers on there that just wanted nothing to do with me, do with me. But like, there was a handful of, you know, uh, makery, engineering guys that were on there that were just doing their own kind of development. And like, I just found that little community and like they helped me figure it out they helped me figure out where to find parts and help me find other makers who are making you know couplers and adapters that like i could afford and figure out where to source ball screws and things like that because like i didn't know where where you know starting from nothing and uh but now you just like you could just open up youtube and be like build your own yeah anything and there's going to be like a never-ending <laughs> scroll of recipe. yeah yeah and that's and that's great like and there'll be links to where they got all their parts and like so you can really get into building your own stuff uh and you know for me that was instrumental to this idea that like tools aren't fixed things right a lot of people like just buy a drill and they use it like a drill but like you could take that motor out and use it for something else. And, mm-hmm. and in, in the context of your machine tools, if they're not half million dollar machines, same thing applies. Like if it doesn't do what you need it to do, you can take it apart. You can space the head up. If you need more clearance, you can, you know, uh, you know, not, you just not be afraid. It's not like a, a fixed thing. And, uh, and that's, you know, that I think, starting with cheap tools helps you kind of break down that, that barrier too. Oh yeah. Learn to learn to work with what you got. Instead yeah. Of just it doesn't buying the, the most expensive because it's supposed to be the best. Yeah. And it doesn't hurt that I had to take a lot of my equipment apart to get it into my space. <laughs> so I already sort of broke that seal where it's like, Oh, I already know how to take this thing apart because I had <laughs> to take it apart to, just to get it in. And so, you know, cause a lot of people don't want to, they don't want to, <laughs> once everything's like you know mounted and perfectly square and true they don't want to touch it because they don't yeah. you know but what uh what software are you designing in um i use the my I, it's a it's a tiered system so uh i use QuickCAD, which is i don't i don't know if anyone knows what this is it's only a, it's like a two <laughs> it's just like a 2d drawing mm-hmm. like module that i bought it was around in the year 2000 and oh, it just does, it just does 2d lines, arcs, 
circles, mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. Um, I use that because that's my sketchbook. Um, that's how I get ideas out of my head quickly. Like I, I also use Rhino for rendering mm-hmm. um, and like more complicated, like, you know, being able to like see the objects, but I can't draw in any of the modern um, can, uh, CAD systems quickly. I can draw in mm-hmm. them, but I can't do it intuitively. So I use QuickCam and I just like, that's my sketchbook. And then I take those drawings and import them into Rhino and do my renders and things like that. But, but really, if you, you know, I got by for a really long time only doing 2D drawings and do, I just do isometric projections in 2D and sometimes if I needed to figure it out and, and just like figuring out the math of doing that like those isometric projections was actually its own mm-hmm. fun sort of math rabbit hole that I went down <laughs> to try oh, to yeah. try and figure it out. So that was those, and, and that's sort of, um, you know, I think that's the fun of learning machining is that there's just like, you know, when I get stuck, like, and we all have times where we're in a rut and we're just like feeling like we don't have any ideas, but whenever I do get stuck, like I just pick up some random technical thread and, and, try and um play with that uh, so like doing isometric projections you know when you know one time i was just like i don't know what i'm doing so let me just try and render these pieces i'm designing in 3d using only uh 2d drafting software and i just spent six months just doing drawings and that sort of became the 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 catalyst for doing like these big these big technical drawings and stuff like mm-hmm. that. it's just it was just like well i'm putting all this care and attention into building these objects why can't i just do the same for for my my cad drawings and so like they became a, a separate facet of art making and so cad can be art too if you believe hard enough i guess <laughs> um i think i think you try to make art out of everything like you literally made art out of g-code <laughs> that's what you're talking about earlier. yeah <laughs> yeah so i've designed yeah I, and i and i've done that too i've like i've so you know, I, I'm not going to tell anybody which piece it is, but there is a piece where it's like I designed a part program and it was, um, you know, a series of machine coordinates that would cut, you know, cut a geometry. And then I took the part and I kind of rotated it on its fourth axis and ran the same exact toolpath, but in a completely different orientation. So it was, the you know, the idea that the program is just sort of um, it's it's uh it's not a fixed shape, right? The program doesn't mm-hmm. represent a fixed shape. It, it represents a series of movements the machine makes. And if you reorient the part in the machine in different ways, um, you'll get a different shape every time or get a different outcome. And so it's just about, you know, what what is conceptually interesting about that idea that the program doesn't really represent um, exactly what you're trying to make. It's the context of, of that. Mm-hmm. that surrounds that series of motions. And so I don't know if that made sense, <laughs> but I tried. <laughs> you, you lost us. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, there's a lot there that I was, I was thinking about, but I, I have seen people that kind of chase that, like the just like different motions and how it makes art. I'm, I was trying to think of the name of uh, one of the guys I was following that was doing something like that. I think it's Ar- Arctur- Arcturus makes. And, okay. uh, so he he's a machinist that kind of makes art also. Yeah, I've seen uh, him do. His, I, he does like I've seen him doing chess pieces. Yeah, he does a lot of chess pieces, yeah. and the, the, he does he does a really nice job on those. 
but he was doing something also, I think, where he was using like a fly cutter or something. And oh, then yeah, um, uh, the, the rotation of the piece would make different um, shapes as it went across where's it. Where's that book? Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to stand up for a second. Where is it? We've, we've gone to plaid. <laughs> I'm sorry. Baseballs. <laughs> oh, I can't find it. Oh, yeah, there it is. Okay. Yeah, I think, I don't know if he was the one. So, okay. He's doing uh, oh, that's what is. Yeah. is what he's doing. So, uh, yeah, this is like a whole other rabbit hole you can go down, which is like these, you know, um, rose engines and engraving machines. I don't know how familiar you are with those, um, but, you know, they're these like, just crazy old, uh, I, I'm going to say French, uh, hmm. decorative turning lathes. And, yeah. you know, they're, weren't they kind of like the, the start of the, of the mill? Cause the lathe came first, right? Yeah. And then adding, adding these functions to the lathe sure. where it would mill, you know, like kind of like how you can, you can take a, a round piece and make it square, you know, for a purpose. But then yeah. they're like, oh yeah, we can make a whole separate machine just mills <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so but it's like it's one of those things like you know there's there are always these like sort of earth shattering moments where like you you're thinking you you've got a pretty good grip on this like machining thing and then you just stumble onto some old historical thing like like that like these rose engines and these um uh these engraving machines and you're just like this is incredibly sophisticated math it's incredibly sophisticated equipment and it's hundreds of years old mm -hmm. and it just like really like changes your your frame of reference for like what this technology is and where this technology came from and mm -hmm. and so there there are you know which takes me back to this idea of like machining as a studio art form you know there are these decorative craft traditions that like orbit and go through machining but it just for some reason in the 20th century it never really got like it never coalesced into something that artists do which is you know make things and some of that is like what we discussed is that machine tools are just super expensive yeah you know um and there's a lot of information that you don't have access to unless you're in industry i think i've moved my light so <laughs> it's like creating a line on my head um and so there, there are external factors why it's not the perfect medium for artists, but there are still other cultural things involved in that, which is, you know, like a lot of the um, studio craft movement was like sort of a rejection of automation and a rejection of factories and a rejection mm. of um, industrialization. Mm. And so there was, you know, there was, you know, temperamentally a, a, a bias against using these kinds of tools for art making because it was seen as not expressive and seen as not you know creative i guess but um that's a little harder to unpack because i'm not a historian i can just read around it and sort of infer yeah. things but it's still really interesting and i think you know I, I don't know it's just one of those things that like if you're a machinist like <laughs> um like just sort of understanding that like gives you like an extra context for, for what you're doing. Mm. Yeah. Th this now I'm going down this rabbit hole. This is crazy. Like I, <laughs> I, I guess I've seen it before cause it's, it looks like it's pretty common on watch faces, mm -hmm. but, and that must've been how they were doing those, you know, pre CNC, but, yeah, so the I, I, the the Gilochet is mostly like on flat round surfaces, mm -hmm. or, or it's it's a 
a way of imprinting on flat objects, but that sort of um, expands into doing decorative turning and crazy mm -hmm. box shapes and like and and that's that gets you into rose engines and rose engines are just these beautiful machines and I hope to play with one one day. <laughs> I just haven't gotten around to it, <laughs> but um, I think I'm heading in that direction. I, I I just don't I just don't know. I don't know how to like. I want to do that, but I don't know how to fold it into what I'm doing right now. And so I gotta find that connection. Hmm. Yeah, you just gotta get one. Uh, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, can, yeah, I can't. I can't wait to see where you do go with. <laughs> oh that. my god! Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, so that's that's cool. that's another danger. Like, just if I get one, <laughs> then I disappear for three years while I <laughs> fix it and try and figure out how to use it and like, whatever it is needs to be seamless. And I don't know how to. You know, I need a. I need a hobby, you know, another, I need time yeah. for another hobby. Yeah, this, this looks like a hobby all, all of, in its own, like, <laughs> yeah. like you could just focus yeah, on Yeah, there's it. a, um, I can't think of the name of it off the top of my head. There's a, a small uh, cooperative that's doing rose turning, I think, I want to say upstate New York. Uh, I can't think of what their name is off the top of my head, but uh, mm -hmm. they do, they do like one week, like, crash courses and things like that that's probably like the best i'll hmm. manage is to like leave my wife and child for a week and go <laughs> to this <laughs> wonderful world of rose turning a rose engine turning so hmm. yeah it looks pretty interesting well now now i got a couple more rabbit holes to <laughs> to go down on stuff yeah so all right well what do you think that, uh, i think we covered quite a bit of stuff there so. Yeah, I think we could uh, we could definitely deep dive into some more stuff, and uh, I think we'll definitely have to have you back on, Chris. Okay. Yeah, we'll do like a second episode, and maybe we'll get a get another another machinist to to, to join in, maybe like a fourth or something like sure. that, just to get another perspective while we're at it. Uh, but yeah, we'll we'll see. Okay, yeah, this is fun. I think yeah. we I think I uh, yeah touched on all my <laughs> my uh, passion like. Mm -hmm. ideas that that generally think about on the regular cool yeah that was definitely a lot of good information a lot of stuff to unpack so i got a lot of stuff to research now <laughs> i'm excited for that yeah i'm sorry i'm not better at remembering the names of stuff that's why i had to just dive and grab a book off of the shelf so. <laughs> now you're good yeah that's great yeah now i'm glad you had that there oh so. man i did have a funny story i was gonna tell so i'll do it real quick and it goes with diving um okay so we had uh these Aflac salesmen come to the building today. <laughs> and uh, so one of the guys, uh, he had, he had came kind of gave a sales pitch. Um, and then he left for a couple hours and like the, there was a lady that was with them and she stayed and was like getting people's info. And uh, he comes back and he's like coming across the shop to come talk to me. And he needed like some more information from me. And he's, he's, he's kind of a bigger guy, but he's like walking along and he, uh, <laughs> there's these two extension cords going across the floor that were like brand new extension cords. So they're kind of like wound up a little bit, mm -hmm. like not like straight across the floor. And he's just like tangling himself all on it and just like wading through yeah. it. Like it's water. <laughs> I'm like, you're getting wrapped up there. And he's like, huh? Like looks down as he's like, I don't know, five feet already tangling himself up into these cords. And by then it was too late and he just, you know, how like when people are tripping, but they like start to run so mm -hmm. they can like try to try to outrun it. <laughs> he didn't, <laughs> he just comes in fucking plows into the concrete floor and destroys his like, he's, he, get, he gets up and he's like, man, this is a $75 shirt. <laughs> Wait, is Aflac insurance? Yeah. Like, that's yeah, like yeah, the exactly. supplemental so, insurance. I know. That, um, 
I don't know if that's ironic. That, it is. Yeah, and the, okay. It, <laughs> unfortunately, that's where my brain went. So the okay. first thing I said to him was like, oh, man, now you're going to have your own claim. <laughs> like before I was even like, are you OK? And okay. he's like, oh, yeah, that's funny. And I'm like, no, are you, are you good? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, how are your knees? And he's like, not great. And he's like, but really, it's my back. And I'm like, oh, it sucks, man. And he's like, yeah, I literally just came back from the chiropractor. Like, that's that's where he went for that, like, hour or two. Comes back, is probably feeling all great. <laughs> Trips over these extension cords. And I'll just probably feel worse in out. the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The back hurts worse in the morning. <laughs> it was hilarious, though. Oh, man. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Chris. Yeah. We uh, That was a really good conversation. And, all right. Uh, thank you all for listening. We yeah. will see everyone next week. All right. Thanks, guys. See you.